Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again today. It's a real blessing to be able to join you here in the church, although it's just those that are taking part in the service that are here, but to join you as well at home. Well, some of you may know that we've been following a series entitled Countdown to the Cross. And today our reading is from John chapter 19, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 17. Uh, or just before verse 17. And we're going to read of the crucifixion of Jesus. In this series, we, we began with the Last Supper, and then we moved into Gethsemane. And uh, then we looked at the um, ecclesiastical trial of Jesus before the Jewish authorities. And last time, we looked at the civic trial before Pilate, the Roman authorities. And so today we come to the story of the crucifixion. And last, uh, and sorry, next time, the, the last uh, Sunday that I'll preach in uh, March, we'll look at the death of Jesus. So today we're thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus in this Lenten period. John chapter 19, just at the end of chapter uh, verse 16, we read these words. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see those to see rather to see whose it shall be this was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots so the soldiers did these things but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Well, this is an account of the crucifixion of Jesus. In 2004, Mel Gibson 
directed a film called The Passion of Christ. I'm not sure if any of you saw it. It's a few years ago now. He directed a film called The Passion of Christ. And it's interesting that that film was given an 18 rating. That 18 rating meant that um, children and young people under the age of 18 weren't recommended to, to watch this film. It wasn't suitable for uh, children and, uh, and young people under the age of 18. The reason for that was because it was such a violent film. The Passion of Christ, of course, is a technical term. It deals with the events leading up to and including the death of Jesus. And in that film, he depicted, um, Mel Gibson put, uh, 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 represented um, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I have to say to you, if you'll forgive me using such a phrase, crucifixion is a bloody affair. And, uh, and as evangelicals over the years, and because of our familiarity with phrases like Jesus died for us and Jesus was crucified for us, and our familiarity with the symbol of the cross, over the years we've sanitized crucifixion. And we've removed the horror from it. And really today, it's easy for us to talk about the crucifixion without really appreciating that it was an horrific event and one that would make us feel very, very uncomfortable if we were to be there. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It has a date that goes back thousands of years before the Romans. Uh, some historians suggest that it was actually begun by the Persians, the Persians believed in a God of the earth. And they believed that if a, if a criminal's blood was spilt upon the earth, that that deity would be offended, that the earth would in some way be contaminated. So the Persians invented crucifixion by which a criminal was lifted up off the earth and raised above the earth so that his blood wouldn't contaminate the earth. I'm not sure how successful it was. It was the Egyptians who followed that through. And they took on this process of crucifixion uh, from the Persians and they honed it and developed it a little bit. After the Egyptians came the Romans and they were the ones that made it. I don't know if it's the right way to put it, but the Romans made crucifixion into an art form because they were adept. They were so skilled at this uh, dreadful form of execution uh, to make death as excruciating and as long as they possibly could. And the Romans were the ones that made it so. And that's where we find ourselves here in this passage in John chapter 19. For our convenience, John writes this about the crucifixion of Jesus in two neat little parts or parcels. In the first part, in verses 17 to 22, he gives us a brief summary of the facts of the crucifixion of Jesus. So, for example, we realize that uh, we are told that Jesus carried his own cross. We are told the name of the place, that it was called the place of the skull. He even gives us the, the Aramaic phrase, the Aramaic name, which was Golgotha. Then he tells us that two other people were crucified with him, and Jesus was in the middle. We have a very vivid picture of the details, the rudimentary fundamental details of the crucifixion of Jesus. We are told that uh, Pilate wrote the inscription that was nailed above on the cross above the head of Jesus. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We are told that the Sanhedrin were unhappy with that title, that they approached Pilate with an alternative suggestion as what the wording should use. Pilate was having none of it. And perhaps this was his last ditch way of getting his own back on the Sanhedrin. Because he insisted that what he had written, he had written. And he wasn't prepared to change it. We are told that Jesus was crucified in a public place near the city. Hence the three languages. Aramaic for the locals. Latin for the Romans. And Greek for everyone. Greek was the most common language used in the New Testament times. It was the language of trade. So those are the details. That's like the little paragraph. You know when you read the newspaper, there's a little paragraph in bold print at the beginning that gives you the fundamentals of the story. If you haven't got time to read the whole story, you've got a little summary. And that's what John does here. But that's not where I want us to focus our attention today. Because in verse 23... From verses 23 to 27, John, the, 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 the evangelist, turns our attention to, amazingly, to Jesus' clothes. And he goes out of his way. Look at verse 23. But standing near the cross of, uh, of Jesus, oh, sorry, in verse 23, um, uh, um, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. And then he specifically mentions the tunic. This morning, I want us to reflect on the significance of the tunic that John takes so much detail in, uh, in mentioning or, or takes so much trouble in mentioning. It was a seamless tunic. It was Jesus' undergarment. It was the, the, the garment that he would have worn next to his skin. It was a soft garment. In Greek, it would have been called his keton. And, uh, and that's the garment that John wants us to focus on. And so that's why in verse uh, 23, he reads, also his tunic. For some reason, John wants us to notice the tunic of Jesus. What's so significant about it? Well, let me suggest three, three ways in which the tunic of Jesus was so very significant. First of all, the tunic of Jesus signifies his obedient surrender. His obedient surrender. Now, please forgive me for the next detail that I want to communicate to you, but it is important. Criminals were always crucified naked. It was part of the Roman way. It was their way of adding shame and disgust to the criminal who was being executed. Some scholars even suggest that it was a way of exposing the criminals to the troubles of flies that were there in their clouds to make the physical agony of Jesus even more distasteful and uncomfortable. Criminals were crucified naked. Now, there were five items of clothing that a Jewish man would have had. Something on his head, like a turban, a belt, sandals, and his outer garment. And then his fifth piece of apparel would have been his tunic, his undergarment. 
Now, we read here, uh, as the soldiers uh, decided to uh, distribute his uh, clothes, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So that means that one of the soldiers got his headband or his turban, one got his outer garment, one got his belt, and the other got his sandals. But then they came also to his tunic. And because it was seamless, and there were four of them, this fifth item, rather than tearing it and dividing it equally amongst them, they decided winner takes all. And they gambled for his tunic. You see, Jesus came to fulfill his Father's will. And the significance of this tunic is that it was the last semblance of human dignity that Jesus had, that was removed from him as he was being crucified or just, after, just before he was crucified. You see, Jesus came for this very moment in time. Throughout John's gospel, we read over and over again Jesus' words, I came to do my Father's will, not my own will. In one scripture, we read how Jesus, it says, set his face like flint to Jerusalem. What a vivid picture that creates for us. There's a steeliness to the jaw of Jesus as he determines to make his way to, the, to Jerusalem and the events that all of that entailed. And Jesus is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, let this cup of suffering pass from me. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's the crucifixion. It's the removal of his tunic. This is the last semblance of his humanity that Jesus has destroyed in the form of crucifixion. And that's why Jesus, from a human point of view, says to his heavenly Father, if it's at all possible, Lord, is there any other way by which I can accomplish your will without going through that? Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Do you see the significance of the tunic is Jesus' obedient surrender to the end. This last semblance of human dignity that he has that is removed from him. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read that Jesus despised the shame. Do you see the significance of that phrase? For the joy, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, I don't care about the shame. I don't care that they've taken my last tunic. I don't care that they've taken my undergarment and they have nailed me to the cross in the way that they have. I despise it. Why? Because of what's to be accomplished through it. You see, that's the significance. It's one of the significances to this tunic that's there. Here's a second significance. The tunic of Jesus signifies his priestly role. Because if we were to go back into the Old Testament to the number of passages that are there, we would find that the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would prepare himself for going into the very presence of Almighty God, to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. The high priest on that occasion would wash seven times in order to prepare his body to go into the presence of Almighty God. And the first item of clothing that he would put on was 
his tunic. And then after that, the ephod and so on, and the other vestments that the high priest would wear on the Day of Atonement, going into the presence of Almighty God. Professor Barclay makes this point very clear in his commentary, and so does um, uh, Charles Swindoll in his book, The Darkness and the Dawn. If you want to read a book leading up to Easter, can I recommend this one, if you'll forgive me, putting another advert into the middle of this, uh, into the middle of this sermon. Chuck Swindoll's book, The Darkness and the Dawn, is a, is a good read in preparation of our hearts for Easter. And they make this point about Jesus' tunic being like a high priestly uh, tunic, fulfilling a high priestly role. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest was the mediator. He was the go-between. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies representing all of the people. This one man representing all of the nation of Israel to God. And afterwards, uh, taking the presence of God and taking God, representing God to all the people. The high priest was a mediator. Barclay makes the point that the word priest in Latin literally translated means bridge builder. Bridge builder. I want to suggest to you this morning that there's no better picture of Jesus on the cross than that of fulfilling a high priestly role of bridge builder. I was so blessed that Lisa picked a song, the last song that we sang, with the opening word about the chasm that existed between human beings and God. That's the chasm. That's the reality. You see, that chasm came into human existence in the Garden of Eden. That's where it originated. I have a picture in my mind of a chasm. The chasm, the picture that I have in my mind is, the, is of an ice field where people who are climbing Everest have to cross an ice field and the ice field is broken up by chasms, crevices that are only a few meters wide but they're hundreds of meters deep. And they separate. They make it difficult. And on the climbing Everest, these uh, mountaineers, they have aluminium ladders that span the crevice that they put across. And then on hands and knees with all of their equipment, they crawl across the chasm, the gap that exists in the ice field in their journey towards the top of Everest. That's a picture of the chasm that exists between human beings and God. It's a dark chasm. It means that the two are completely separated. And that chasm came into existence in the Garden of Eden with the sin of Adam and Eve and the fall. And that's the chasm that Jesus is bridging when he's on the cross in his high priestly role as a bridge builder through his death upon the cross. Jesus is bridging the gap between humanity and God. And the bridging of that gap, the, the bridging of that chasm is so pictorially represented in Matthew's gospel when Matthew explains that at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, in the temple it was the curtain that separated the very presence of God with the rest of Israel, with the rest of human being, humanity. And it's interesting to notice, just a silly point perhaps you might think, that it's torn from top to bottom. It's as if God reaches down 
and grabs the curtain by the top and he tears it from top to bottom. And when the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, the chasm is spanned, the bridge is built, and God's presence is no longer in isolation from human beings. I've been reading some, uh, uh, well, I read a lot, uh, reading some good books this, uh, this uh, week, and I came across a, a lovely story in one of the books by Skevington Wood on preaching. I'm reading books on preaching at the moment. I might learn something, perhaps. And uh, as, I, as, I'm, uh, as I was reading, I came across this lovely story. And I'll, During the Second World War, uh, the Great War, uh, messages, communication was by telegraph wire, and there was a corps in the British Army called the Signal Corps. Their sole purpose was to keep communications going. And on one occasion, a shell broke the wire out in no man's land, which made it difficult for messages to be sent. And a young soldier, unarmed, was sent out into no man's land to repair the broken wire. Miraculously, he found the two ends of the wire but as he brought them together, he was shot, fatally wounded. And he hadn't time to join the two wires. So what he did was, in the dying seconds of his life, he overlapped the two wires and he put them in his fist and he died. Reconnecting the two ends of the wire in his dead hand. And when they found him, rigor mortis had set in and the grip in his hand was holding the two wires together. You see, through the soldier's death, there was a reconnection. That's what Jesus is doing in his high priestly role. Through his death on the cross, he's making the connection again between human beings and God for you and for me. Well, there's one other significant fact, I think, about the tunic of Jesus. Not only, was it a, 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 not only did it signify Jesus' obedient surrender, and not only did it signify Jesus' priestly rule, but thirdly, it signified Jesus' compassionate care. Compassionate care. I want you to notice that after John records the gambling for his tunic, which finishes in verse 24 with these words, so, so the soldiers did these things at the end of verse 24. Look at the next opening phrase in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and some others. Isn't it interesting that in John's gospel, Reference to the gambling for the tunic is put into a juxtaposition with the uh, mother of Jesus, with reference to the mother of Jesus. John's gospel is the only gospel that actually mentions this fact of the conversation between Jesus and his mother. There was a tradition in Judaism in the first century the tradition was that when a young man came of age that he left home, that he received a tunic from his mother, that his mother would make a tunic for him, an undergarment. 
It would be the last action of a mother for her son as he left home to set up his own home or to go his own way in life. And with that detail, one can understand the significance of the soldiers gambling for the tunic of Jesus and Jesus seeing his mother who may well have made that tunic for him. It's not difficult to see the significance of those words. The point is that Jesus knew. His compassionate care for his mother was that as he was aware of them gambling for his tunic, his eye caught his mother and he saw his mother. Verse 26, Jesus saw his mother. And it seems reasonable to me to suggest that as Jesus saw his mother and realized the significance of the tunic, that his heart broke for the care of his mother. And that her heart broke when she saw the soldiers hold the tunic up to examine it before they cast lots for it. And so we have a, a, the tunic signifying the compassionate care of Jesus for those who, who loved him, for those who loved him. And that's why he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. What Jesus was in effect saying here was, mom, you're going to be okay. John, look after her. Make sure she's okay. Take care of her. Mom, I want you to go and live with John from now on. He'll look after you. He'll care for you. And of course, we have said before when I've been preaching on the, the uh, turning of the water into wine, do you remember there, Jesus referred to his mother as woman. And it seems harsh to us, but I explained then, and I'll explain again today, that by Jesus referring to his mother as woman, it was a term of great dignity, great respect. He was showing his mother the utmost respect. We would think if you were referred to a woman as a, as a woman, it's a disparaging phrase. Not so for Jesus. Not so in the New Testament. It was rather the opposite. It was a, a phrase of great endearment. And Jesus was making sure that his mother was well looked after after his crucifixion. That's why John wants us to pay attention to the clothes of Jesus. And why at this particular moment he wants us to pay particular attention to his tunic, which signified his obedient surrender, his high priestly role, and his compassionate care for those whom he loved. Well, as I bring this message to a close... I suppose the great question that I want to ask you with, the, with, with great respect, I had no desire to be impertinent, but I want to challenge everyone that hears my voice today. What's your response to this crucified Jesus? How do you respond to him today? Well, you see, if we looked at Sanhedrin, we may we may note that they respond with a hate-filled heart. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. They wanted to be rid of Jesus once and for all. 
They had nothing but contempt and hatred for him. Do you know what I think is a sad truth? I think there are people in the world today who treat Jesus with the same contempt and they want nothing to do with him. But what's your response? What's your heartfelt response to a crucified Jesus? We could think about Pilate and his hard heart. Last time we, we noticed how Pilate knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was innocent. But his hard heart meant that he was willing to have Jesus crucified anyway because it was either him, Pilate, or Jesus. We could notice the soldiers and think of their cold heart because their cold heart was indifferent to Jesus. It was just, if you'll forgive the term, it was just another day at the office for the four or five soldiers that were there. There was probably five soldiers. One was an officer in charge of the other four who divided the clothes. The cold heart of the soldiers. Perhaps you identify with Mary and the broken heart that's there. Perhaps you come to church this morning or you tune in this morning to the service on the crucifixion of Jesus with a broken heart. And you identify with Jesus and with his mother who both had broken hearts. I can understand the significance of the tunic for Jesus' mother, if you'll forgive a personal anecdote. I lost my mother at, when I was nine, uh, 18 years of age. And uh, when my mum was a little girl, she was awarded a little medal by the Methodist Church for her collecting money for the Junior Missionary Association. It was a little small medal. You know, I carried that medal around with me for years. I don't know where it is now. I've lost it now. But for many years, it was my connection with my mother. Small medal that I kept in my pocket for such a long time, her JMA medal, Junior Missionary Association. And we come maybe this morning with a broken heart to the cross. Or perhaps, like John, we come with a warm heart. You see, Barclay refers to John as the disciple who came back. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane what the disciples did? There were only 11 of them because we had already lost Judas. But the 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane fled, all of them, all of them. John's Gospel tells us that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Peter turned up at Caiaphas's home. But at the cross, there's only one disciple that comes back. Only one young man that comes back, and that's John. Because his heart was warm towards his friend, his savior, his mentor, his lord, his master, his king. What's your heart's response today? I would long for you to have the same heart that John had. A warm heart towards the crucified. Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we address our prayer to you this morning. Lord Jesus, we have read John's account of your death, your crucifixion rather, upon the cross. 
We cannot imagine. We cannot fathom, Lord, what that meant for you, how that impacted you, what it would be like to go through such an ordeal. But today, humbly, we bow our our heads and we say, thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your willingness. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for the bridge build that you did. Thank you for your compassionate care that we know extends not just to your mother, Lord, but extends to us as well. Lord, you're the, you're the only one that we can go to who knows and, and knows what our broken hearts are really like. Lord Jesus, accept our thanks today. Accept our lives surrendered to you today and warm our hearts with your resurrected spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.